I want to start by telling you something you likely already know, that writing a sermon every week is not always easy. Now, I know Pastor Bob makes it look easy, but he's been doing it for decades, and he's a pro. But there's a certain weight and responsibility to preaching a sermon. A couple things. One is what's said from this platform carries a certain weight to it. It's, it's not a commencement speech. It's not a keynote from the Global Leadership Summit. What is said from the platform should affect your life. It should move you in your spiritual faith and your day-to-day living as you find and follow Jesus. There's also a weight to preaching because sermons, if we're doing it right, are not what we want to say necessarily, but what God wants us to say. And there's a big difference between the two. I mean, suppose Bob, on his own, unilaterally decided to preach what Bob wanted to preach without seeking God's insights. I mean, you could call this place Cornwall Church of Bob, and we wouldn't do that because we know that we've got to find out what God has in store for this body of believers. Now, why am I telling you this? Because I want to pull back the curtain just a bit to share with you what happened this week and how we got to today's message. Now, last weekend, if you were here, I made the case that God is capable of hate. And we spent our time together looking at the things God loathes, pride and lying, evil plotting and disunity. And your feedback, your response varied. <laughs> I want to tell you something you don't already know. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> okay. For some, okay, for some, for some of you, your response, I can't wait to hear your response after this. For some of you, your responses were, were varied. I mean, they, it was like new, it was a new idea, the idea that God could possibly hate. For some of you, it was a little bit unsettling. Uh, for others, it was just a beneficial wake-up call. This idea that there was needed some course correction in faith and action. So the plan last week was, what does God hate? The plan this week was, what does God love? A bit of a lighter message. And so as I was preparing, I started creating that list of things God loves. He loves righteousness and mercy and humility and a cheerful giver and forgiveness and reconciliation and obedience and compassion. And the list went on. I had my outline. I had the passage, the points, the supporting verses. And then Wednesday morning came. I woke up with an unsettled feeling. And I knew what it was. And, and as I was having my quiet time, God said to me, and I'm paraphrasing here, Brian, I don't want you to say that. And I, I was a little confused because I was reviewing my notes. I thought, this seems pretty solid. And I just kept feeling God nudging me, saying, that's not what I have. And so I remember saying, okay, then what do you want me to preach on? And about that time, there was a bing, like a ding in my inbox. And like Pablo's dogs, I, I went and rushed to open my email, and it was an email from Ron Pye, our worship director here. And he wanted to share an idea for how we could close our services after the sermon. His idea was simplistic in the best way, and it forced intentionality. Ron, in his email explaining the idea, in part said, 
sometimes we blow right through what's already in our brain and it may lose its meaning. So after a quick, enthusiastic, yes, I hit send, and right about then, the Spirit nudged me to John 3.16. And I was like, yes, I will use John 3.16 as part of the message. Thank you, Lord. And, and then I got this feeling, this, this, this nudging that said, no, no, no. If you want to tell people what I love, read John 3.16. And I'm sitting in a coffee shop doing my sermon prep, and I kind of smiled, was like, God, this isn't my first sermon. I, I, give me something bigger. And he said, if you want to tell people what I love, read John 3, 16. And that's when the sermon changed. That's when the rewrite began. And that's how we got to today. So yeah, we're going to look at John 3, 16 today. I'm going to beg you not to check out. You likely know the verse, but I truly believe that God has something for you in this verse today. So let's check it out. John 3, 16, you likely know it. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 16 is one of, if not the most, recognized, memorized, reference verses in Scripture. And aside from its spiritual impact, John 3, 16 has had impact on personal or professional sports, in movies, TV shows, marketing campaigns, and pop culture. Back in 2009 at the BCS National Championship game, Tim Tebow famously on his eye black would put John on one eye and under the second eye, 316. Google would estimate 90 million people would search John 316 that night, making it the number one search for the next 24 hours. Clothing company Forever 21 features John 3.16 on the bottom of its bags. And In-N-Out Burger, as we know from Pastor Bob, has got John 3.16 on the bottom of its cups. Martin Luther said the verse is the gospel in miniature. And Max Licato described the verse as a 25-word parade of hope. John 3.16 can be seen as concise and authoritative, simple and profoundly deep. And because we've memorized it and we can recite it on command, the challenge, the fear is, are we in danger of blowing right through it, as Ron said, because it's in our brains and therefore it loses some meaning. So we're going to look at this verse today, but first a bit of context. John 3.16, of course, can live on its own, but it's one verse in the context of a greater, grander conversation that's happening. Up until this point, it is Jesus talking. But many scholars believe at John 3, 16, the narrator changes. John chapter 3 begins with this conversation, a late night conversation with Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. They likely wanted to meet at night or Nicodemus wanted to meet at night so that people weren't around, murmurs weren't occurring. He wanted to meet to see Jesus to ask him some questions. And so they talk, they discuss. It's important to note Nicodemus's motive, his attitude is curiosity. They talk about many things, one of them being being born again, which confuses Nicodemus. And Jesus laughs a bit and says, wait, you're, you're a teacher of the law and you don't understand this? As they're talking, they get to John 3.15 
And John 3.16's meaning becomes more clear as Jesus proclaims the need to be lifted up. The conversation here in John 15, the Son of Man, Jesus speaking, the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Then the narrator changes. John takes over, restates 15 as verse 16. God gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And it's John's restatement that has become so infamous and well-known and historical and impactful. And John 3.16 begins with those four undeniably familiar words, for God so loved. For God so loved. It all begins there. And the word for in this context could be changed for because or to because So for clarity, it could read, because God loved the world. Now, as I mentioned last week, God is the definition of love. He doesn't merely love. He is love. He is the embodiment of love. First John would write, love is of God. God is love, period. It's an expression of who he is. Therefore, the reason God so loved is because God himself is love. And the type of love here referenced in the Greek is an agape love. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've likely heard of this agape love. And this love defined is a transcendent fatherly love in the highest form. Think of the person you love the absolute most and then realize God's agape love is far greater. God's agape love is incomparable. It is unmatched. It is insurmountable, meaning there's no outloving God's love. You know when you see a, a new married couple and they're like, I love you. And the other one's like, I love you more. And then the next one's like, I love you the most. And you're like, Ugh. there's no outloving God's agape love. It's also unending. It is perpetual Francis Chan in his book, Crazy Love, would say this, we are constantly overwhelmed by a radical and relentless love of God. God's love, we are inseparable from it. Romans 8, 38, 39, it says, I am convinced there is nothing that can separate us from God's love, not death or life, angels, demons, fears of today or tomorrow. Even the powers of hell cannot separate us from the love of God. And ultimately, God's agape love is truly incomprehensible, meaning our finite brain cannot understand or handle the complexity of God's agape heavenly love at its most. So we rely on our best understanding that God's agape love is proved by what it does. And so what did God love? The verse continues, for God so loved the world. Consider your your circle of influences. And and the most innermost circle, hopefully, is where your love of Jesus lives. It's the core. It's the source of your love. And then the next circle out, maybe that's your spouse. And the next circle out, maybe that's your kids or your parents. And then the circles begin to blur a bit relatives and grandkids and best friends and then then there's everyone else and then love kind of blends to like 
And then finally, outside that last circle, if we're being honest, those are the people it's difficult to like and seemingly impossible to love. And yet God so loved the world. In John's gospel, world is used no less than 10 times in 10 different ways from referencing the world, like the earth world, the physical earth world, to the world of people, humankind. But there's a problem with God so loving the world. And it's the same with every plot line in every romantic comedy ever. Boy likes girl, girl doesn't like boy, boy tries throughout the movie to win the girl over, girl realizes, oh, I do love him, so girl loves boy, they get married, credits, end of movie. In other words, our God of love loved the world, but the world didn't love him back. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we have selfishly turned away from God in different ways and for different circumstances, whether it's defiance or pride or our belief that maybe we're unlovable. And so how does God respond? I love you, but you don't love me? Well, then I'm just going to wipe you out. I'm just going to take my ball and go home. Forget it then. He could have responded with anger, but he doesn't do any of that. Yet instead, for God so loved the world anyway. None of us get from God what we deserve. Instead, we are given what we don't deserve, an unparalleled love from Him. And you've heard this before. Sunday school, VBS, Awana, a youth retreat, Sunday mornings, Christmas, Easter. It's all the same message. Despite who you are, God loved. And it's only as we grow that we start to wrestle with this belief that the, God of, the God's love of John 3.16 is actually an undeserved love. We start to write stories in our head and they can quickly become our reality. Well, God could not love a person like me. If you only knew what I have done, I'm convinced God's love is for someone else. Or we fall into the trap that God's love is actually conditional. Well, well, God will love me if our culture is conditional, our world is conditional, but God is not. John didn't write, for God so loved those that read the Bible, for God so loved those that go to church, those that tithe, those that pray, those that don't swear, those that don't sin. Gregory Boyd would say this, Jesus loved people others rejected, even people who rejected him. This is how God loves. It's an unfathomable truth that God loves the Christian and the criminal, the disciple and the dictator, the believer and the not yet believer. John wrote what is true for God so loved the world. But we can make this way more personal because the world includes you. For God so loved you exactly as you are. Back in 2003, I got a phone call from David Newell. 
Now, you likely don't know David by name, but you probably know him by the character he played on TV. David played Mr. McFeely on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He was the speedy delivery guy. And David called me to tell me that I had been granted an interview with Mr. Rogers. He told me I would have 10 minutes and Mr. Rogers was open to any question I had. I could not believe it. I was going to get to interview Fred Rogers. A couple weeks before the interview was scheduled, I, I got another call from David. This time it was to inform me that my interview would need to be postponed due to the progression of Fred's cancer. The interview never got rescheduled. Among the many questions that I had to ask Fred that day was I wanted to ask about one of his favorite songs from his show. The lyrics say, it's you I like. It's not the things you wear, it's not the way you do your hair, but it's you I like. Every part of you, your skin, your eyes, your feeling, whether old or new, I hope that you'll remember, even when you're feeling blue, it's you I like. It's you yourself. It's you I like. I remember reading in an earlier interview, Fred mentioned he was particularly fond of this song because it spoke to the one. It reminded and instilled that we are each individually deserving of an agape-like love exactly as you are. But I get it. Sometimes we don't feel lovable because we're especially aware of our situation or what we're involved in. A.W. Tozer once said this, Jesus came not to condemn you, but to save you, knowing your name, knowing everything about you. He knows you individually as if there was no one else to know on earth. He knows the worst about you and loves you the most. If you are out of the fold and find yourself away from God, put your name in the words of John 3, 16. I am the one he came to die for. Tony Campolo provides a great word picture when he said this, God carries a picture of you in his wallet. Grandparents, you know what I'm talking about, right? God carries a picture of you. You are so valuable to him. He carries a picture of you in his wallet. He loves you as you are, and he loves the idea of who you will become through him when you are transformed. This is the cornerstone of John 3.16, determining who, God, who God's love is for, and the answer is, it's you. Brennan Manning, in one of his books, said this, we should be astonished at the goodness of God, stunned that he should bother to call us by name with our mouths wide open at his love. God is a big God, and he has a big love to share. Despite our sin, despite our failure, despite our shortcoming, for God so loved the world, and that includes you. But John continues, he's not done. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God didn't love us in words alone. 
In his commentary, D.A. Carson writes, the original Greek places the highest emphasis on the word one, one and only, and secondarily on the word gave. In other words, God gave his one and only, his best, his most unique son. And he gave, gave as a gift, a gift with no expectation or obligation. Bob Goff says, love is never stationary. Love doesn't keep thinking on or planning for. Simply put, love just does. Therefore, love is an action. It's this idea of, don't, don't tell me you love me. Show me you love me. And in this case, God's action of giving his one and only son in Jesus was why? For what purpose? Romans 6.23 reminds us, it's sin. Sin was the barrier between us. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin, and newsflash, we're all sinners, the cost of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. This gift is the greatest evidence of his love for sinners. Jesus was the link. Jesus was the bridge. Jesus was the only way to reconcile those he loved to himself. Romans 5.8 would say, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. There's another verse you likely know, but we can lose its impact if we just know and go. Consider the impact of that truth. We were lost. We were hopeless. We were on a spiritual, literal death row. And then God, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, intervened through an agape love that saved us through his son. Ephesians 5.2 says, Just as Christ loved us, he gave himself as a sacrifice for us. Isaiah 53 says, The sins of all of us fell on him. It's the ultimate offering, the ultimate reconciliation plan, the ultimate example of an agape, selfless love in action. And finally, he finishes the verse this way. God so loved the world, gave his only son, that whomever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal, or your version might say, everlasting life. It's the gift to end all gifts, the gift of life. Actually, check that. The gift of eternal, everlasting, forever life. And who is the recipient of this amazing gift? It's for whoever Whoever believes. In fact, the literal translation is all the ones believing in him. The same truth would be communicated in Romans 10, 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a promise. Therefore, that invitation is open to everyone, even the most unlikely. Probably most, most famously in the Bible, we read about Paul, who was Saul. And as Saul, he was merciless, like he was a, a persecutor of Christians, a hater of the church. He was a violent aggressor until he believed. Lee Strobel 
You probably know this story. A former atheist worked at the Chicago Tribune. He was a, a formidable foe against Christianity. Decided to do his own journalistic research to prove that Christianity was wrong. And through his research, he believed. Stephen Williams is a friend of mine. And for 34 years, he was a practicing atheist. He had no problem telling his Christian friends, you know that's fake, right? 34 years. A friend brought him to an event. He heard about the gospel for the first time, and he went to the stage and believed. For me, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I, I went to Awana. We went to the 11 o'clock service. I was in the, Christ, the Christmas play. We went to youth group. But it wasn't real until one Sunday morning in 1992, it all clicked. For God so loved the world, the world includes me, okay? And God loved me so much, He would send His one and only Son. I'm an only child. I get that. That must be a pretty big deal. And Jesus would live and die for me so that I could be with Him forever. It clicked for me in 1992. The last part of John 3.16 isn't a condition, it's not an expectation, it's an invitation. We don't have to memorize the Bible or pray every day or have exceptional attendance at church or promise to be perfect. The invitation is simply believe. A belief more than just Jesus was a man. I think the percentage is 99.2% of people believe that Jesus existed as a man walking on the earth. The invitation to believe, to trust in, to put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Love requires action. And since God so loved the world, He gave. It's up to us to take that amazingly perfect gift. You know, this week, I was reminded of what happens when we get out of God's way and we let Him do His thing in His timing with His perfect plan for His perfect purpose. It turns out this sermon was never meant to be about a list of things God loves. It's true. God loves peace and patience and kindness and harmony and, and forgiveness and reconciliation and generosity and care and so on. But today, what God wanted to remind us of, of what He loves, actually isn't a what at all. It's a who. It's you. And just as God loves you, you are called to pass it on, to love others as much as you love yourself. Remember, love takes action. Love is not stagnant. It requires us to do something. And just as God is known for His love, might we desire to have the same? Now, God's love is unmatchable, but it is, it is imitable, meaning we can imitate the love of God, and there is our challenge. To love because He loved us first. Love because He loved us first. There's two parts the first is to love others. And the why? Because you were loved first. We're called to love the unlovable, to love the lovable, to love our strangers and enemies, 
Love those that don't look like you, act like you, live like you. We're called to love our neighbor. To love others is an expression, an outward expression of God's love impact on you. Jesus initiated a love for us, and He expects us to follow His example as best we can. In his book, uh, Everybody Always, Bob Goff shares a great story about uh, a friend, Carol, a neighbor, Carol. I'm going to read just the ending of this story. For the last 22 years, our neighborhood has put on a New Year's Day parade to celebrate. Our parade starts at the cul-de-sac at the end of the block and ends at our front yard. Our block has 20 houses if you count both sides, so the parade is not long. Our first year, there were eight of us, and now there's probably four to 500 that come every year. There are no fancy floats. Kids pull wagons full of stuffed animals and pet goldfish. Carol is one of our neighbors. One year, she didn't think she'd be able to walk in the parade because of the cancer she was battling. So that year, I put Carol in the sidecar of my Harley Davidson and gave her a ride. She was a hit of the parade. Just before we got to the end of the parade route, Carol turned to me with a deep, thought-filled breath and said, you know, Bob, I'm really going to miss this parade. Me too, Carol, I said, me too. That night, I asked God if he would let Carol have one more parade with us. Seven months later, our family had just returned from a trip out of the country. When we got home, we got news Carol was back in the hospital for another operation. We rushed to the hospital, we sat on our bed together, had a good cry, talked about balloons, parades, eternity, and Jesus. By New Year's Day, Carol was clinging to life by threads and was way too weak to get out of bed. Just before the parade began, my sons and son-in-law went across the street and Carol carried Carol from her bedroom to a chair they had put in the living room facing the street. Carol could hear the music and knew the parade was coming, but she couldn't see past a corner window. What she didn't know is that we had changed the parade route, and within a few minutes, all 500 people rocked right through her front yard. I sat next to Carol, holding her hand as hundreds of her friends and neighbors walked up to their window, her window, pressed their noses against the window, waved at her, bounced balloons, and as each did, through her tears, Carol lifted her weak hand slowly to her mouth and blew each one a goodbye kiss. A few days later, Jesus lifted Carol to heaven. It would be her second parade of the week. Bob says this is why we do the parade. We can't love people we don't know. We're supposed to actually love our neighbors, engage with them, delight in them, throw them a party. There's no secret code, he says, to love others. Your mission is simply to find a way to love everyone. We love because God first loved us. For God so loved the world that he acted. For Bob and his neighbors so loved Carol, they acted. If you so love others, you've got to act too. And how you initiate God's agape love, that's up to you and the Spirit to determine Pray for that boldness to act. Will you love by serving someone else, praying with someone else, sharing wise counsel, showing up and just 
listening, providing a financial blessing, extending an invitation, building community. Maybe you participate in neighbor to neighbor this summer, or maybe you just throw a parade. Agape love does not come natural to us because on our own, we are incapable of producing that kind of love. So if we're going to love the way God loves, that agape love, we have to go to the source. John 3.16 reads a couple different ways in different translations. The contemporary English version reads like this, God loved the people of this world so much that He gave His only Son so that everyone who has faith in Him will have eternal life and never die. There's amazing simplicity and a profound life change tied to John 3.16. It is far more than a bumper sticker a marketing campaign, or a catchphrase. It's God's love letter to us. Craig Hill once wrote this. He said, God's answer to the question, who am I, is this. I love you. You mean everything to me. You are worth the life of my son, Jesus Christ, because that is what I paid for you. You belong, and you are supposed to be here. In 1860, Anna Warner wrote a poem. Two years later, William Bradbury would take that poem, put music to it, it would become a hymn. And the words read, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Church, if you want to know what God loves, the answer is you. 